Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us today for the Therapeutics Thursdays podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. My name is Jeremy Sparks, and I'm a clinical assistant professor at Xavier University of Louisiana College of Pharmacy, as well as a clinical pharmacist at the Tulane Primary Care Clinic at University Medical Center. I will be your host today for the ASHP Therapeutic Thursdays podcast. With me today are Nick Lajak, a ambulatory care clinical pharmacist at Banner University Medical Center, Phoenix, Family Medicine Clinic and Endocrinology Clinic. Adrian Sandoval, an associate professor at University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley School of Medicine, as well as the director of pharmacotherapy and vice chair of research for the Department of Family Medicine. And finally, Amanda Popko, a clinical pharmacy coordinator for ambulatory care programs at Geisinger Health System. Thanks for joining us today, Nick, Adrian, and Amanda. Let's get started talking about today's topic, Diabetes Treatment Guidelines, a review of 2021 updates, and discussion of a patient case, part two. In part one of this podcast series, the speakers provided an overview of the 2021 Diabetes Treatment Guidelines and introduced us to our patient, WW. To reintroduce the patient case, WW is a 68-year-old black male who presents for an initial pharmacist visit for chronic disease state management with referral from his PCP. He has a past medical history of hypertension, type 2 diabetes, chronic kidney disease stage 3, tobacco use, cholelithiasis-induced pancreatitis in 2016, status post a cholecystectomy in 2017, cabbage in 2007, and hypertriglyceridemia. He reports an allergy to lisinopril with angioedema, and he's currently prescribed Nifedipine XL 60 milligrams once a day for hypertension, metformin XR 1000 milligrams twice daily for diabetes, Traceba Flex Touch 200 units per milliliter with a dose of 80 units once a day for diabetes, Rosuvastatin 20 milligrams once a day, and aspirin 81 milligrams once a day for secondary prevention of ASCVD. He smokes tobacco one pack per day for 35 years and denies alcohol and illicit drug use. His vitals today in the clinic include a blood pressure of 143 over 79, a heart rate of 77, and a BMI of 41.8. His vitals from the last visit in October 2020 include a blood pressure of 56 over 87 and a heart rate of 79. His hemoglobin A1C today is elevated at 8.8%, and this is down from 9.1% in October of 2020. He has an elevated serum creatinine of 1.75 and an EGFR of 48. His lipid panel resulted with total cholesterol of 231, triglycerides of 823, an HDL of 39, and a direct LDL of 127. He has an elevated urine albumin creatinine ratio of 303, and all other labs, except for his blood glucose being 211, are within the normal limits. His immunization record reports Twinrix series completed in 2019, a flu shot 
in October of 2020, Tdap in February 2008, and Anumavax 23 in March of 2018. Of note, he is unable to monitor his blood pressures at home as he doesn't have a blood pressure monitor. However, he does check his blood sugars at home and self-reports an average fasting sugar of 145 and an average two-hour post-supper blood sugar of 211. Also in part one of this podcast series, we had some notable changes to the 2021 guidelines. In section nine of the ADA 2021 standards of medical care, we had a big focus on the pharmacologic updates, specifically looking at figure 9.1. As far as what our first line therapies were, we saw that metformin and non-pharmacologic therapies were still our first line choices. And we also noted that there were major updates within the treatment algorithm for patients with established or high risk of ASCVD, heart failure patients, or chronic kidney disease patients. With the changes to the diabetes treatment guidelines and the patient presentation, let's evaluate our options for courses of therapy. Nick and Adrian, can you walk us through your preferred treatment options and explain why you like to use one agent over another? Hi, Jeremy. Nick, if it's okay, I'll... Go first. <laughs> Thank you for that. And so, as you mentioned, uh, Jeremy, uh, over the last few years, the ADA centers of care for diabetes have been increasingly recommending meds with cardiovascular benefits more and more, right? I would say if I was a student right now or somebody prepping for boards or just a practitioner and they said, you have one area to focus on as a clinical pharmacist, I would say it's figure 9.1, including table 9.1 and then, and then also the figure 9.2. In the entire 200 and some pages, that's where our main focus will be for our discussion in the next couple of minutes. But essentially, that's the area where we're going to consider when we're deciding what medication we're going to arrive at. We're going to consider based on comorbidities, side effect potential, including weight and hypoglycemia, and then cost as concerns. And so other key points that were emphasized in these guidelines were the treatment optimization and the term you'll see it over and over show up as clinical inertia which is essentially not optimizing the medications or not doing a reduction when we're supposed to uh, in our patients. Um, obviously, we always want to address medication regimens and medication-taking behavior regularly. And another key point was when our A1Cs are greater than 1.5% away from our goal, then we need to realize that we're really not going to achieve that with a monotherapy regimen, but continue to go down the path of dual up to triple therapy as well. And in all cases, we want to uh, make sure that we continuously review these medications for efficacy, side effects, patient burden, and consider that at some point the patient may require med reduction or even discontinuation, which was unheard of for diabetes management perhaps a, a few years ago that we were going to start pulling off medications. And so when it comes to what medication we would arrive at, um, as Jeremy was mentioning, we do have some overlap or some comfort to say that something stayed the same, and that's in the initiation of the pathway, right? And so for those of you that are wondering if metformin continues to be king of the hill, that is still the case. We still do have metformin and lifestyle modification as the entry pathway for this figure. And so unless there's a contraindication to metformin, then our patients should continue to be on that medication lifelong. And the next thing that we do consider then at this point would be if our patient is a high risk or has ACVD, CKD or heart failure. And so this is where that area, specific area where it's clarified in the 2021 standards. And so if we answer yes, uh, like in our patient, then we should consider three pathways. And the key word here is independently of baseline A1C, individualized A1C target, 
or of metformin use. And so we would have to consider GOP-1s and SGLT-2s, I've heard this statement, is we would consider it as almost like statins in some situations, irrespective of the independent lab values, uh, if they have these comorbidities. So looking at those three pathways that we have for, for our patient, um, WW does have that established ASCVD and also has CKD at this point. Now, he doesn't have heart failure, although he has the risk factors, but if he did have heart failure, then we would consider an SGLT2 inhibitor with proven benefit like the pagliflozin. And so uh, in our patient WW, who happens to have ASCVD and CKD, uh, this means that we have to address these two pathways. And I would say, as Nick is going to elaborate as well, this is where it gets really interesting, right? And where you can have a debate about what step do we take next? And the 2020 standards um, still left it up for some debate or more in want of more clarification. And so the good thing in the 2021 standards is that it clarifies that if a patient has CKD, which includes diabetic kidney disease and albuminuria, then we should prefer, and then you can underline and bold that in your mind, to use an SGLT2 inhibitor with primary evidence of reducing CKD progression. And in other words, the evidence for using an SGLT2 inhibitor over a GOP-1 is stronger in this case. Now, if we could not use uh, an SGLT2 inhibitor from the primary evidence, then we would use an SGLT2 inhibitor that had positive outcomes in the cardiovascular outcome trials or a GOP-1 uh, receptor agonist with proven cardiovascular benefit. The key point being here um, that if the SGLT2 inhibitor is not tolerated or contraindicated. So from that information that we have for our patient, he doesn't have that SGLT2 intolerance at this point. And so the next question that we would consider is, are there any contraindications for us to use this medication? So uh, when we're arriving in the medication, one of the things that I like to cover with patients and, and our learners is once we have some options, is we don't necessarily choose which one's best, but we should consider which ones should we not use, right? The first do no harm principle. I think it was Nick who said, you know, we previously we had a table, you could present the table and then you can decide which pathway you're gonna go forth and you base it off which medications you're not gonna use for that patient. And so in this situation, the contraindications are hypersensitivity. We guessed that one, right? And it, that's like the classic contraindication for any medication is if there's an allergy to it, Prior DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis, would rule out the using these medications in these patients, but we don't have that in this situation. And then renal impairment. Uh, when it comes to ertugliflozin, we would have a specific contraindication here because ertugliflozin is contraindicated when there's an EGFR of less than 60. And in our patient, has an EGFR currently of 48. So that would rule out ertugliflozin by that fact. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about the pagliflozin and pagliflozin and canagliflozin later. We would avoid the use of these SGLT2 inhibitors in patients who have frequent UTIs, prone to jitinourinary uh, yeast infections, prone to fractures or DKA or foot ulcerations or neuropathy, or those patients that are prone to dehydration as well. But for the purpose of, I guess, of our discussion today, we could say that our patient did not have DKD, right, or albuminuria, just to go down that path. And he did happen to have an EGFR less than 60 as well as an increased cardiovascular risk event, then this is where we could use an SGLT2 inhibitor with proven cardiovascular benefit or where Nick will jump in, a GOP1 receptor agonist with proven benefit could also be initiated. 
So what are some of the pros and cons of using some of these SGLT2 inhibitors in our patient? The benefit would be that it does have intermediate efficacy. A1C reductions between 0.5% A1C all the way to 1%. I read somewhere when it comes to the A1C reduction in these cases, you know, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. So we could perhaps look at it that way in this patient. They're not attributed to have hypoglycemia as monotherapy, but in combination, especially in those patients that are on insulin, can have more adverse effects for hypoglycemia. So we got to keep an eye on that. They do cause weight loss. So in our patient who has an elevated BMI, that would be a positive. May also result in hypotension, but in a patient who has hypertension, that may be something that we may be looking for, as well as they've been shown to reduce the progression of CKD. Now, when it comes to FDA indication for this indication, only canagliflozin has it at this point. The pagliflozin showed positive outcomes in this area, but it still does not have that indication. That's not necessarily a reason not to use it, but just a note on there. And we are pending the results of the EMPA kidney trial, which will come out in June 2021. Other benefits include the ASCVD benefit. For example, empagliflozin also has this indication to reduce cardiovascular death in type 2 diabetes with established ASCVD. And the third category here would be heart failure benefit, where all SGLT2 inhibitors have that benefit and it's only dipagliflozin at this point that has the FDA approval. Two more benefits include that they're oral and they're once daily, and you can combine these with metformin. So from an adherence standpoint, decreasing polypharmacy and pill burden, that could be an option. The negative of the SGLT2 inhibitors would be that they unfortunately are costly, but uh, our friend Dr. Popko over there, uh, Amanda, is going to perhaps elaborate on that in just a little bit. They require close monitoring, and they do have those more common infections, as we mentioned. They have their risk of volume depletion and, and bone fractures and DKA. Increased LDL and risk of Fournier's gangrene has also been noted as part of these, these medications. But an important part to also consider is that these medications can have less glycemic benefit as the EGFR declines. And so it may lead for us to add another agent into this patient's regimen. And they will all require renal dosing, as we're going to do with this patient, and need to be discontinued before having surgery, a couple of days before having surgery. And these are not metformin, so they don't have that long-term data that we've seen with metformin over decades. So even though there's still some good data over the last decade or so, we're still going to be pending some more information on that. And so once we determine in our patient that an SGLT2 is an option, how do we narrow it down to, to prescribe one, right? So how do we get to the canagliflozin, the pagliflozin, and pagliflozin, or tugliflozin? Well, as we said, starting off with the contraindications, at this point, we would rule out the ortugliflozin, which leaves us with the three canagliflozin, the pagliflozin, and empagliflozin. And if we look at which one is indicated, that would be the canagliflozin. So if we start off with that as a first option, we also look at another benefit that canagliflozin gives us, and that's the fact that it's been studied in patients with even lower EGFRs. So for example, in this case, if the patient had an EGFR up to even less than 30, if the patient had significant proteinuria above the 300, we could still continue to leave that similar dose. Considering drug interactions, right, because we're pharmacists, so we can't forget about those. When you run these medications against this medication profile, nothing truly significant stands out except there is a unique one that does come out in our patient, and that's with the statin, rosuvastatin and canagliflozin, it can increase the rosuvastatin concentration and lead to more adverse effects. So we would want to keep that in mind as we're adding canagliflozin in our patient's profile. 
So that still leaves us with the three medications. I haven't simplified it for us. What are we going to do next? Well, you know, in, in an ideal world, we would have a, a head-to-head trial like we always want, right? Comparing all three SGLT2 inhibitors that are left in this type of situation, and, and we don't have that. So we need to go with what's next, and we look at their trials. And they still have a similar efficacy when it comes to A1C reductions overall. In terms of the indications, we've already talked about how canagliflozin is the one that's has the FDA approval for reducing progression of CKD. And so that would leave us as the canagliflozin as the first option, potentially initiating this medication and maintaining it in patients who have an EGFR between 30 and 60 at about 100 milligrams per day. The second choice that we could consider in this patient would be empagliflozin. And if we were to initiate at this patient, we would have to monitor even much more closely because his EGFR is at 48, and this medication should not be initiated in patients with an EGFR less than 45. So we would have to keep that in mind if we were to use empagliflozin. The third option would be depagliflozin, and similar to empagliflozin would have that do not initiate below 45 milligrams uh, before an EGFR of 45, excuse me. So we would have to consider that as well. And you're probably wondering, well, what about ertugliflozin? What if it didn't have that contraindication? Well, there was a recent trial called the Virtus CV trial that didn't really have any, basically the results were that among patients with type 2 diabetes and atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, it was not inferior to placebo with respect to major adverse cardiovascular events. So it wasn't necessarily superior, but not inferior. And if we remember, that's essentially how these trials started to make sure that they were not have negative effects cardiovascularly. And then finally, we would address any adherence concerns, patient preferences, or prescriber experience and, and preference with the medications. But I would love to hear what Nick has to say in terms of GOP-1s, especially if we would go down that pathway. Thank you, Adrian. That was a very thorough description of your approach to adjusting pharmacotherapy for this patient. The presence of kidney disease would push my preference to an SGLT2 as well, but given the patient's positive cardiovascular history with cabbage in 2007, and the most recent BMI of 41, I'd consider GLP-1 agonist as another highly recommended option. Additionally, GLP-1 agonist may have a bit more A1C lowering power compared to the SGLT2 inhibitors. So the patient's past medical history does include pancreatitis, which normally would be a reason to avoid this class of drugs. However, our patient had polyolithiasis-induced pancreatitis and has since had his gallbladder removed with no recurrent events. Since that precipitating factor has been removed, I'd still feel comfortable recommending this class of drugs. So let's say that the patient likes a greater weight loss potential of GLP-1 agonists compared to the other anti-diabetic options and wants to start one. Ideally, we want to select an agent with positive cardiovascular data, which would be injectable semaglutide, dulaglutide, or liraglutide. Both semaglutide and liraglutide come in pens that allow for dose titration to minimize potential side effects. For semaglutide, the recommended starting dose is going to be 0.25 milligrams once a week for four weeks, and then increasing to 0.5 milligrams weekly thereafter. The first six doses are all available in one of the 0.5 milligram dose pens. If further glycemic control is needed, then that dose can be increased up to a max of one milligram weekly. (laughs) That is going to require a new prescription for the one milligram dose pen though. Another interesting note is that the one milligram dose pen of semaglutide is going to be changed to a four pack of single dose pens, which is gonna be more similar to that of dulaglutide starting in April of 2021. So then for liraglutide, the recommended starting dose is 0.6 milligrams just once a day for one week, and then the dose can be increased up to 1.2 milligrams daily thereafter. There is a 1.8 milligram dose available for additional glycemic control, 
which would also require a new prescription for three pens or nine milliliters instead of just the two pens for a one month supply. The last one, dulaglutide, comes as a fixed dose in each pen with the recommended starting dose of 0.75 milligrams just once a week. This dose can be increased up to 1.5 milligrams for additional blood sugar control. And there's actually now doses available at three milligrams and 4.5 milligrams. It is important to note that patients will need a separate prescription for pen needles when using liraglutide, the daily GLP-1 agonist. Semaglutide is dispensed with pen needles in the box, and then dulaglutide has the needles contained inside each of the pens. So with these drugs, administration counseling is going to be very important for GLP-1 agonists, especially if it's the first time the patient's using any kind of injectable therapy. Educating and having the patient demonstrate proper technique is preferred but may be difficult if interacting with them remotely, whether by video or over the phone. Manufacturers generally have videos available on their website, as well as patient handouts that can go through the steps for administration if you need to give them some extra resources. So if the patient was hesitant to start injectable therapy with a GLP-1, semaglutide is also available as an oral formulation, though it does not have the same cardiovascular benefit compared to the injectable form. Generally, when interacting with patients, I'll try to provide a game plan going forward that if the glycemic goals are not met with the first agent that we add, we likely would be looking to add the other class, so SGLT2 versus GLP-1, if something else is needed. Thank you, Nick and Adrian, for that commentary on the GLP-1 receptor agonists and SGLT2 inhibitors. We talked about this a little bit already, but what are some potential side effects and drug interactions that practitioners should be aware of? Are there any other characteristics about this particular patient that stand out to you? Thank you, Jeremy. I would say that as we review the SGLT2 inhibitors, especially when they came out in the early, I think it was like 2013 or so, we as pharmacists tend to focus on counseling, on adverse effects, administration, and what to look out for, right? And so one of the things that we saw with SGLT2 inhibitors is that perhaps we focus too much on the adverse effects that we forgot to emphasize the benefits that these were showing as well. And so when we're counseling on the adverse effects, it is important that we consider and counsel the patient that they may have increased thirst, increased urine output. And the reason for that is in, in diabetes, polydipsia, polyuria could be confused, right, as a, as a state of uncontrolled diabetes. But in this case, these medications act similar to what a diuretic would. And so a patient may not be realizing that they're taking something that's like a diuretic home, especially if they haven't been advised by their prescriber about that. And so it's important for us to bring that home. The importance of staying hydrated is also important to counsel on that in terms of side effects. It can also lead to more genital urinary fungal infections. So proper hygiene is important. It was more common in females. However, it was also seen in uncircumcised males. And, and so we have to keep that in mind when we counsel. The more delier adverse effects would be the fornier gangrene, the ketoacidosis that we would want to counsel our patient on. And there is a history of hypersensitivity, very, very small post-marketing. But in this patient who has a history of angioedema, it's something that, again, we would want to look out for and counsel to be extra cautious in these situations. Interestingly enough, it has adverse effects of influenza and nasopharyngitis. So right now with the COVID-19 pandemic occurring, you start something like this and a patient would be experiencing nasopharyngitis and influenza it really could help mark up that differential diagnosis for the provider. So it's still listed on there, but not as common. Uh, dyslipidemia and urinary tract infections are some other ones that, that we would want to consider as adverse effects, as well as hyperkalemia as possible ones. Other things to note are the drug interactions when these are prescribed. 
it's important to consider that when at least when you run them in, in one platform, to not mention any specific names, but you won't get any anyone listed as category X interactions with these medications like thou shall not use, but more in the category D interaction for considered therapy modification. And so if we look at the first one, it's insulin. Well, we know that these medications are encouraged to be used with insulin. Essentially, what we need to consider is that the patient may experience more hypoglycemia. And so we may need to address the insulin that the patient is using in terms of quantity at that point. So phonoureas, similar to insulin, more hypoglycemia, our patient's not on that. So we don't have to consider that at this point. But if we do go with canagliflozin, there is an interaction significant where these medications would decrease the concentration of canagliflozin. For example, phosphonatoin, phenobarbital, primidone, rifampin, and ritonavir. The other category would be more of a monitor area, and those are with antihypertensives, such as diuretics, especially loop diuretics. The patients using NSAIDs, those can essentially impact the volume, can cause more falls, more lower blood pressure, and so we would want to console on that. It does have interactions with fluoroquinolones and SSRIs for more hypoglycemia. And interestingly, one with salicylates, but in our patient is only in an 81 milligrams. That interaction would not necessarily be relevant because it would be up to three grams of aspirin, essentially, where it becomes relevant. And lastly, as we mentioned earlier, canagliflozin with rosuvastatin, the interaction would be that rosuvastatin concentration could increase. And so if there is a tendency or a leaning towards increasing the statin intensity, perhaps it would be prudent to wait just uh, maybe a few weeks or so to see how the interaction plays out before we start increasing that statin and may lead to more adverse effects. If you must go with it, still the high-intensity statin, then atorvastatin does not have that interaction listed with the canagliflozin. And then as far as category B interactions, so those that were studied and are recommended are uh, medications such as ACE inhibitors and ARBs, obviously not together, but if you are, if the patient isn't on SGLT2 inhibitor and an ARB, those are appropriate combinations. Our patient was intolerant to an ACE inhibitor, so perhaps in the future may be considered for an ARB. And lastly, it's okay to use with a plerinone and potassium-sparing diuretics as well, but just closely monitor for those medications. And now I'm going to transfer to Nick to see if he wants to add his side about GOP-1s and adverse effects. And I already discussed the issue of pancreatitis when considering a GLP-1 agonist. This class of drugs does carry that rare side effect of increasing the risk for pancreatitis. So again, it is rare, though it's still something to counsel a patient on. So making sure they know what kind of symptoms to watch out for and when they should be going to the hospital for treatment. So the patient in this case does have elevated triglycerides with recent labs showing a level of 823 milligrams per deciliter. This is something to monitor closely as elevated triglycerides also increase that risk for pancreatitis. The rosuvastatin dose can be increased to improve the patient's lipid levels before considering something like icosapentethyl or omega-3 fatty acids to lower those triglycerides specifically. Another item to screen for is specific types of thyroid cancer, specifically medullary thyroid carcinoma or multiple endocrine neoplasia syndrome type 2, as these are listed as contraindications to use for any GLP-1 agonist. Patients with other thyroid issues remain candidates for GLP-1 agonist therapy. And while it's not a contraindication, give patients with any gastrointestinal issues a second look before starting these drugs. Part of their mechanism of action is to slow gastric emptying, which may exacerbate some issues like gastroparesis. So cost and access can be significant barriers with GLP-1s, as they probably are the most expensive anti-diabetic drug class. Our patient case didn't list any cost issues, but this information isn't always readily available in the chart or records. I do think Amanda will have some more info about cost and access in a bit, but I wanted to mention it here. 
Generally, GLP-1 agonists don't have many drug-drug interactions beyond increased risk for hypoglycemia with other hypoglycemic-associated drugs. And just when I'm in clinic and discussing new medication options, I always start by explaining the positive effects first. So for GLP-1s, that's going to include glycemic control, best potential for weight loss of any anti-diabetic drugs, or at least mitigating weight gain from insulin, and then appetite control, as well as the potential for cardiovascular benefit. Briefly explain how the drug works and relate this to the expected negative side effects like nausea or GI discomfort and sometimes vomiting. Due to their effect on delaying gastric emptying, be sure to counsel the patient to eat smaller meals, eat more slowly, and then stop eating when they get full, especially when starting or increasing the dose. Generally, the stomach side effects go away with continued use, but I do urge patients to contact me sooner than their next appointment if they're having severe nausea or frequent vomiting. In that case, that particular agent may not be the right one for them, but we can always try an alternative GLP-1 if they're open to it. Thank you, Nick and Adrian, for that commentary on the GLP-1 receptor agonists and SGLT2 inhibitors. We talked about this a little bit already, but what are some potential side effects and drug interactions that practitioners should be aware of? All right, now that we got some more context to these agents and you know where we might want to use them, what we want to counsel our patients on, what are some recommendations for baseline and ongoing monitoring with these treatment options? And when do you want to bring the patient back to the clinic and reassess their response to these medication changes? Hi, Jeremy. That's an excellent question because being on both sides of the prescription world, right, as pharmacists who not only can dispense but also are prescribing these in some situations, we get to see where sometimes it's easy to think about how a prescription's written and then it goes on and, and the patient magically just gets it in their hands and everything is great. But we understand how many roadblocks can occur for those patients to finally get that medication in their body. And so I think that one of the most important things about periodic monitoring or even baseline or follow-up would be to make sure that the patient did receive the medication that we intended to get. And Amanda will elaborate a little bit more on that as well. But, you know, assuming that the patient did get it at that point, before initiating, as clinically indicated, we would want to make sure that we correct uh, hypovolemia prior to starting any of these four SGLT2 inhibitors. And you'll find that in bold letters and included in all the package inserts on there. We want to make sure that the patient's renal function is appropriate and, and to give us a baseline of what it's going to be before we start these agents to see how it's going to change over time. We want to monitor serum potassium and obviously the glycemic targets. However, we're doing that, whether it's self-monitoring A1Cs or time and therapeutic range. And so we also want to consider the volume status of the patient, their blood pressure, hematocrit, and electrolytes, their liver function when it comes to canagliflozin and dipagliflozin. Those are two medications that need to be adjusted based on liver function. And we want to consider our patient in terms of risk of falls and fractures. Our patient may be more prone to that because of his age and other comorbidities. And so we want to make sure that we discuss that with the patient as well. Consider the risk for general mycotic infections as well as UTI and as well as considering the signs and symptoms of ketoacidosis, not only at before initiating, but also as clinically indicated. And finally, as Amanda is going to elaborate some insurance coverage for these agents as well. In regards to when the patient would return to clinic, in our situation that we find ourselves now with the COVID-19 pandemic, telemedicine, I think, is a great tool to use in these situations for a quick follow-up where the patient doesn't necessarily just have to come back to clinic to see if they obtain the medication. So a quick telemedicine appointment uh, to see if the patient obtained the medication and would also help us avoid the clinical inertia as well as if the patient has already started the medication to see if there's been any serious adverse effects in terms of renal function and volume status 
uh, but perhaps also drug interactions now. Uh, is the patient experiencing more hypoglycemia? Do we need to do a dose reduction of the basal insulin? Or are we going to consider initiating the GLP-1 agonist in place of the insulin the patient's on or so forth? So all of those things we would need to consider. You would find that perhaps in older tables of the ADA standards, it would say follow up in three to six months in some situations. And I think as the new standards are going, we're realizing the importance of making sure that we're closely monitoring these patients and that we adhere to these changes in, in newer standards. And so those are some of the key points when it comes to the SGLT2 inhibitors. The GLP-1 agonists don't have much for specific lab parameters to watch beyond the basics that are already followed for people with diabetes, like A1C, BMP, and a lipid panel. Exenatide is the only agent with specific renal dose adjustments, so following renal function is not as highly needed compared to those SGLT2s. Still, keeping an eye on the patient's renal function can be important, especially if they're with CKD stage 4 or 5, as they might need to exercise a little bit more caution with these drugs. Also, keeping an eye on triglycerides may be useful as it may relate to that pancreatitis risk. As I mentioned, I do advise the patient to call the clinic if they're having any significant nausea or any episodes of vomiting. Recommend patients follow up in about three to four weeks after starting that GLP-1 agonist because that's going to give us a chance to check for any lingering side effects after they started taking it, evaluate glycemic control, and then make that decision about dose adjustments before they pick up their first refill. Thank you to Nick and Adrian for reviewing the GLP-1 receptor agonists and SGLT2 inhibitors. They both brought up the fact that the ability to access and pay for these medications could be an area of concern and something that as ambulatory care pharmacists we're pretty familiar with. Amanda, what kinds of trends have you noticed in practice in regards to medications in general, as well as related to when the guidelines get updated? How and when do you decide to switch patient medications if the guidelines suggest newer options? Yeah, so as age and Nick said, GLP-1s and SGLT-2s are expensive. When it comes to medications and guideline updates, as we historically see, insurances seem to lag with that. Thankfully, SGLT-2s and GLP-1s, the benefits of them have been around for enough time now where insurances have at least one or two of them on their formularies. And as we're seeing going forward is that insurances will have multiple SGLT2s or GLP1s on their formulary, which is great because as we are starting to see is that certain evidence is showing that one may be preferred over another one based on the patient's history. With regards to guideline updates as well, one big thing we see in clinic is, you know, the providers may not be as ready to switch to newer therapies. And that is where ambulatory care pharmacists make a huge impact, especially in primary care or in clinic endocrinology, anything like that, which is great. When we could think about switching a patient to one of these newer agents based on guideline updates, I want to do so immediately. So these medications have cardiovascular benefits. Some of them, the SGLT2s are showing progression or slowing progression, excuse me, of CKD. So that's, you know, these are agents that if I have an option to switch a patient to them, I want to do so immediately. But getting back to cost, that's where the issues come from. So when I'm thinking of this patient in this case, one of the first things I would have wanted to ask this patient is what insurance does he have and try and investigate what options that I have. So when we're thinking of patients, when I'm seeing a patient, there's four different patients really I'm seeing. Is it a Medicare patient, a medical assistance patient, commercially insured or uninsured? So if we start with the Medicare population, those are sometimes our hardest because of the dreaded donut hole. So like I said, these, as we all said, these medications are expensive. They're only brand name. There is no generics. So if I'm going to put somebody on a GLP-1 agonist and they're only Medicare 
Um, most of the time, almost all the time on a GLP-1, they're going to hit the donut hole. Um, there's really no way around it. They're just so expensive. There may be times where we could get away with doing an SGLT-2 inhibitor and them not hitting the donut hole because they are not as expensive as GLP-1 agonists. So it really depends on the patient indication, having that conversation with the patient. Outside of the donut hole and other options for Medicare patients, as we know, we have patient assistance programs. So one nice thing about these medications is that since they are brand name, they all have patient assistance programs. So you would just find the manufacturer of the brand of the medication that you want to utilize and fill up the paperwork for that. I usually do it for the patient. However, you process it in your clinic or help the provider do so. There is a lot of financial information involved with that. So, um, you know, just explaining that to the patient and trying to, you know, have that discussion before you go through the process. So they're not disappointed if they're denied. Certain states for Medicare patients have a medication program. So I work out of Pennsylvania and we have something called PACE and PACENET. So that is something that is additional prescription copay coverage for uh, patients on Medicare who do not meet medical assistance qualifications, but they also have financial restrictions. So that is a great option that I'll look into for my patients if I can't help them with getting a patient assistance program or something like that. The other new thing that we have now with Medicare, we can't forget, is the National Insulin Savings Program. And I know this is about GLP-1s and SGLT-2s, but we can't forget about Zoltify or Zoltofi, however you want to pronounce it. That's a generic uh, insulin degladec and liraglutide. So some, what the National Insulin Savings Program is, basically for Medicare patients, you know, even if they hit the donut hole, their monthly cost of insulin would not be more than $35. Now, a Medicare plan has to opt into that. It's not all Medicare plans. However, be that combination medication we are seeing is on some of these plans. So for some of the Medicare patients, we are opting, who may benefit from insulin as well, in a GLP-1, we'll switch to Zoltify to get that GLP coverage for the patient. And then we know that the cost of the medication will not go up past $35. With that being said, though, you still have to be mindful of the donut hole and if they are in any other medications, because if they hit the donut hole, all the medications hit the donut hole. Outside of Medicare patients, we have the medical assistance. I'll go to next. Those are my personal easiest patients because in Pennsylvania, we have a preferred drug list. So all of our medical assistance plans have the same drug list and they all have SGLT2s and GLP1s on them. So I guess it depends, depending on the state. I'm not sure about other states, but those are my easiest patients to get on these medications because their cost is either zero to maybe $1 or $3 for a copay. Commercially insured patients, we have the option to use copay cards for them. And just to note, Medicare, obviously we cannot use copay cards for those patients, but we have the option to use copay cards. So when I see a patient who has commercial insurance, I make sure they do not leave my office on one of those medications without a copay card because it's going to significantly bring the cost down for the patient. One thing to keep in mind on copay cards is max savings. So yes, we want to pick at the agent that is best for the patient based on their history. However, max savings on copay cards is really crucial, especially this time of year when patients are hitting their deductibles. So, you know, for example, Farsiga has a max savings of $270 whereas maybe Jardians has a max savings of $150. So if someone has a deductible and it's like $500, they may be able to afford one of those medications over the other. So keeping mind to max savings of these copay cards for commercially insured patients is really a nice way to try and also navigate if a patient has issues with costs to get them on one of these medications. Uninsured is the last population of you know, healthcare coverage that we have. And they're very difficult as well because there's not a lot of option for them because these medications are so expensive. So 
When I have someone who is uninsured, I'm usually looking at trying to figure out why they're uninsured and trying to help them with that first. They can sometimes use patient assistance programs. Historically, you cannot use copay cards for patients who are uninsured, but some manufacturers do have, you have to read the fine print, do allow some cost savings with uh, the copay cards for patients who are uninsured. But most of the time, those claims need to be run through an insurance before those patients get the cost savings from a copay card. Outside of that, that is really everything related to the cost. So just, you know, key notes is really investigating that for your patient um, because if they can't afford the medication, they are not going to take the medication. So as pharmacists, um, that is what we, you know, we're medication specialists. Insurance should be something we are able to be very well versed in and especially helping our providers with those decisions as well. Thank you, Amanda, for bringing in that information on cost savings and how to help our patients to be able to afford and and use these medications. Um, Can't get any of those benefits if they can't pick the medication up. So open to everyone here, are there any final words of wisdom related to this patient case or from your experiences in practice that you'd like to share with everybody? I'll chime in just a little bit here. I would say that at least the way I was trained and then we practice and so forth is with a lot of these medications, we take the, just pharmacotherapy in general, we take the approach of, you know, using the least amount of medicine for the least amount of time and allowing those patients to have that shared decision-making with the prescriber, with the pharmacist about what's going to be added to their medication profile. And so that's one of the areas where we have to kind of resist that urge to continue to follow the least amount of medicine, I guess, least amount of time. Because, you know, when it came to diabetes management, we were more focused on uh, just controlling those glycemic goals. And this is something that's new that we have to consider, just like we would consider a statin and an ACE inhibitor in patients with diabetes and proteinuria. Now we're being asked to consider and to think about these newer medications, you know, that help in that ASCVD reduction, that help in in DKD and CKD progression, and also in heart failure. So it's not just about thinking about those glucose readings, it's trying to shift our mind into now just thinking about these pathways and counseling and, and discussing these with the patients and our colleagues, not only in pharmacy, but in our other professions as well, healthcare professions, about the importance of looking at this new evidence and helping our patients consider those medications. So in other words, going away from just the treating the labs and considering more of what is it that we're ultimately trying to do in diabetes, and that's prevent people from having heart attack, stroke, and and dying earlier than they were supposed to. And so we look at these medications that way, and we have to have this discussion sooner than later, uh, all through a patient-centered and team effort approach. And lastly, I think a lot of us work in areas where we do have the benefits of having interprofessional teams and the importance of attacking diabetes from different angles. You know, pharmacotherapy is just one side of it, but the importance of lifestyle modifications and behavioral health that goes along with this, especially with everything that's going on, I think it's a big part of the diabetes management that we cannot leave out. These medications are, you know, to use this this little story here, it's kind of like a -a fix-a-flat to get us from point A to point B, but it's not going to be the new attire that's going to solve everything. And so we have to have those discussions with our patients because we don't want them to leave our clinics with the assumption that I took a pill and I'm cured or I'm taking more pills and I'm getting sicker and here's the end coming for me. And so I think for all of us, it's important that we discuss that with our patients. 
I agree. And uh, just to echo Adrian as well with the shared decision making and how crucial that is when you're seeing patients to decide which of these medications to use. And, you know, don't give up on one of the medications. Um, as, you know, Adrian and Nick both, you know, went into great detail about the differences in some of them and comparing them. If a patient has a GI intolerance to, say, semaglutide, and but you think GLP-1 therapy is one of the best options for the patient, you know, try dulaglutide, which is shown to have less GI upset. So um, if you need a prior auth, prior auth, I have huge success with prior auth in these medications. Um, if the patient actually does have bad reactions to them or just can't tolerate them, don't let the insurance prohibit you using a medication that is going to improve cardiovascular outcomes on a patient. So, um, you know, there's a lot of options, you know, with prior authorizations and things like that. So just wanted to echo that, Adrian. So thank you for bringing that up. So because either of these classes can improve blood sugar control throughout the day, we may need to consider decreasing the dose of the patient's diclodec. We could decrease the dose preemptively or depending on how confident the patient feels adjusting their own dose, give them some self-adjustment instructions based on their fasting blood sugar levels to make those changes themselves between now and the next appointment. Along the lines of what Adrian said about reducing negative outcomes and not just improving blood sugar or A1C results, my usual approach to treating people with type 2 diabetes is to maximize those non-insulin agents first because they have those extra benefits on either cardiovascular risk or renal function, and then adjust the insulin dose as needed to keep the blood sugars controlled without contributing to low blood sugars. As long as there are no contraindications or barriers to using SGLT2s or GLP1s, I try to get both of those classes on board and then reduce whatever insulin the patient may be taking. Another note is that the ADA guidelines have been increasing their emphasis on overbasalization which they define as basal insulin doses greater than 0.5 units per kilogram or more. So that's something to keep in mind when interacting with patients on high basal insulin doses. In patients that are past that mark or above that 0.5 units per kilogram for their basal dose, we really should be looking to add another agent to target those postprandial blood sugars instead of just further titrating the basal insulin dose, which calls back to the clinical inertia that we talked about earlier. Our patient's current degludec dose is above that 0.5 unit per kilogram level. Uh, I calculated it at about 0.57 units per kilogram. So we really should look to add another agent first before further titrating that insulin dose. Targeting postprandial blood sugars by adding some kind of mealtime insulin regimen is likely going to be our next best step if we can't get one of these SGLT2s or GLP1s on board. Yeah, I'll chime in similar to what Adrian was saying about reducing those negative outcomes and not just trying to improve blood sugar or A1C results. Usual approach when I see patients is to try to maximize these non-insulin agents that have those extra benefits on cardiovascular risk or renal function, and then adjust or decrease those insulin doses just to keep the blood sugars controlled without contributing to low blood sugars. But as long as there's no contraindications or barriers to using either SGLT2s or GLP1s, I do usually try to get both of those classes on board in the patient and then just reduce their insulin doses as much as possible. Another note, too, is the guidelines increasing their emphasis on over-basalization, which they're defining as 0.5 units per kilogram or more of a basal insulin. So if patients are at that mark, you really should be looking to add some other agent instead of just further titrating that basal insulin dose, which does play into that clinical inertia that we had talked about previously. So in our patient's case, the current deglutec dose is above that 0.5 unit per kilogram level at 0.57. So we really should be looking to add another agent that's going to target either daytime blood sugars a little bit more heavily or both morning blood sugars and daytime blood sugars. So in the case that SGLT2s or GLP1s 
aren't an option for the patient, our options do become a little bit more limited, but really looking to add some kind of mealtime insulin regimen is probably going to be the best next step for that patient. That's all the time that we have today. I want to thank Nick, Adrian, and Amanda for joining us today to discuss the diabetes treatment guidelines, a review of 2021 updates, and a discussion of our patient case, part two. If you haven't before, I encourage all of you to check out the ASHP's Ambulatory Care Resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings such as the Ambulatory Care Career Tool, certification resources, rotation guides, guidelines, policies, and info on billing and reimbursement. Be sure also to become a member of the section of Ambulatory Care Practitioners Connect community where you can exchange ideas and ask questions from your peers. Thanks again for tuning in for this session and join us here every Thursday where we'll be talking with ASHP member content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official. Thank you.